Welcome to the season two premiere episode of Behind the Scrubs, an original podcast series produced by UT Arlington's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. I'm Aspen Drude, manager of Conhi's Center for Rural Health, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Taylor, who is Conhi's director in the Office of Enrollment and Student Services. I had to take a minute to remember that you've got a professional. Oh my director. gosh. Aspen. Hi, Jeff. What's it happening? I feel like I haven't seen you in so long. I know. We went without doing a podcast all summer, so now we're back. Literal months. Literal months. But we're neighbors. We are neighbors. So we did run into each other a couple times. Quite a few times. Yeah, and I can hear Jeff's voice from down the hall, so I already know when he's in office. Listen, that time between 1 p.m. and 2 p.m. is my singing time, and you're going to have to adjust. Well, I think you've actually gotten your employees to also do the same, so now just everybody on the hall. Listen, we do what we do around here. (laughs) This is how we do things in the College of Nursing and Health Innovation. It's a positive work environment. I love it. You know, it's, it's great to be back for season two, talking about public health. Yeah, I'm this so time. excited. Just a good rule of thumb. We don't podcast when it's 100 degrees. Um, it's today. only 85 right now. Uh, well, I'm showing 92, 5, oh. 99. So we're, we're getting close. Okay, well, it's increased seven degrees in the last hour. So. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to put my car to get on, ready for the fall. <laughs> Me too. Aspen is pumpkins. gallons of chai tea. Yes. So for all the caffeine that we need to get this podcast started and the semester. To get things moving. That's right. That's right. So this season, like Jeff said, we're focused on public health. We're really focused on innovation and research. And so with that being said, we have invited Dr. Tiffany Kendrat to be a part of our first episode. Dr. Tiffany Kendrat is an assistant professor in the public health program here at UT Arlington. She is also the director of the Health Survey Research Laboratory. Her research focuses on evaluating epidemiologic factors that influence health-related behaviors, morbidity, and mortality across the life course using large data sources. Dr. Kendrat, welcome to Behind the Scrubs. Thank you. So, as you know, you may be aware, the Season 2's theme is public health. So, uh, Dr. Kendrat, would you take a couple of minutes and just share with us your, your public health journey? How did you get to where you are today to doing what you're doing? Okay, so my public health journey has lots of twists and turns and new turns. I am a first-generation college student, and so I went into undergrad having absolutely no idea what to do. I started off as an undeclared major and eventually picked one. So I chose psychology, and that's what my bachelor's is in. I was told at the time, you need to find a minor. And pretty much everyone that I knew was going into some sort of business field, whether it was accounting, finance, HR type thing. And so afterwards, I worked for a couple of years on some different entry level positions, like a call center where they did health insurance benefits and also a wellness company where we did online wellness programs and you would get points for doing different activities and you could like get money off of your premiums if you did certain activities. So things like if you had an annual physical or you got a flu vaccine, you would get a point and then at the end of the year, you would get either a gift card or money on a health savings account. And so that kind of is what got me really interested in health and wellness. And so I started taking some classes at the time and I took some classes in social work and then realized the differences between micro and macro level social work. And that's when I learned about public health. And so that's when I applied for a master's program 
And at the time, there really were no bachelor's level public health programs. Those really didn't start until, well, UTA started in 2017, but a lot of the other programs didn't even start until after the 2010s. And well, I'm a little bit older than that. So I got my MPH at the Dallas Regional Campus, and I had quit my job, worked as a research assistant, and collected some data in Dallas at a program that did, it was called Good News, and it was looking at genetics, nutrition, environment, wellness, all these different things with churches in Dallas. And through that coordination, I was able to get a job full-time working as a research study coordinator with them. And so from there is when I really decided this is what I wanted to do and that I was really interested in training students. I scheduled lectures. I ordered food. I did all of the little day-to-day tasks, but then also had the opportunities to work with students on data analysis and to fill in the gaps on lecturing when there was, say, someone needed to come and teach students on how to create a poster. If there was not a faculty member that could do that, then I was able to do that. And so I did that for a few years. I got married and my husband is English. And so we moved to England. And then I worked as a lecturer at the Brighton and Sussex Medical School in their public health program. And so From there, I really realized that I would eventually need to get a PhD if I wanted to be in academia. But that really solidified me wanting to be in public health, to be a professor. And so after we moved back, I got my PhD. I worked at UT Southwestern in the physician assistant program during that time and then made my way to UTA and started in 2019. Okay. So this is something that when I first started here, Back in 2018 is when I got here and I was almost immediately working with public health students on the advising side. A question Becky Garner would always ask was, how do you define public health? So how do you define public health? How do I define public health? I could give you the textbook definition or I could tell you that public health is everywhere. Public health is everything, really. It includes things like epidemiology, which is what my background is in which is the distribution and determinants of health related to disease or any other health outcome. But it includes a lot more than just disease. It includes things like sanitation. It includes water. It includes transportation. It includes things that are defined as social determinants and different structures that set up where people live and where people work that relate to their health. Yeah, that was exactly what I was going to say. That's my... Word for word, exactly what I told Dr. Garner many years ago. Is it? So for our viewers, Dr. Garner is the head of our public health programs here at UTA. So thank you for kind of walking us through your journey. That's really interesting. My background is actually really similar to yours from undergrad. I started as a psych major too. So when you said that, I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I went into business, ironically. So (laughs) that's fun that you came from psychology all the way up to a PhD level. So that's really neat. So of course, with a PhD, you know, you do a lot of research. As we mentioned before, you have a lab here at UTA called the Health Survey Research Lab. Can you tell us a little more about that lab and maybe some of the research that's happening now? 
Sure. So yeah, my lab is the Health Survey Research Lab. And so my lab is really, it's not a traditional lab where you would go and take people's blood pressure or uh, in the Department of Kinesiology, there are things like people will run on treadmills and they'll do different tests or other things. I do a lot of data analysis with my research. And so my lab really physically is located in my office. But most of the students that I work with, we have virtual meetings. And I work with a lot of master students who work during the day. And so we will kind of meet around lunchtime or we'll meet at night or when they have breaks. And so it is usually something that isn't always face-to-face. But my lab focuses on doing research using big data methodologies. And so most of the research that I do is using large-scale databases. Some of them are publicly available. Some of them are restricted. And I'm able to access those databases through the Dallas-Fort Worth Statistical Research Data Center. And so with the lab, the students will get experience depending on their background. I usually have one or two undergraduate and graduate students a semester. However, this semester, I have quite a few more doing a pretty interesting project. But what they will do is they will meet with me and we will go over these pre-existing data sources that are available online. So for example, the National Health Interview Survey, I've done a lot of research with that survey. And it's a large household survey that's done with about 100,000 people every year. The data is compiled already and put together and available on the website for people to download and answer their own research questions. So I may have a student who is brought on for a project that I'm looking at, and I will ask them to go to the website and look through all these different documents to determine what data I want to use from that survey for my study. And that leads to a lot of follow-up questions. Yes. <laughs> so the, the the first one, really, as we're going through this, because secondary data, the, you know, studying that, it's, it's an interesting concept. So how do you approach that data that may have been collected for other purposes? In other words, like, does the, the original intent of a survey impact the way you utilize it in your secondary analysis? Yeah, so a lot of these national surveys, the intent is surveillance. And so they will be used just to provide any sort of summary of health statistics of the population. So for example, with the National Health Interview Survey, they will ask many different questions among adults and children related to so many different health topics. They will start off asking things like sex and race and ethnicity, where someone was born. But then they will also ask about their income, where someone works. They will ask things about any pre-existing health conditions that they've ever been told by a doctor that they have. They will ask things about flu vaccine. They will ask other immunizations. They will ask about physical activity, how many minutes per week somebody is physically active. And then they will come up with their own reports just to kind of describe what the population looks like. From there, that data can be used to look at things that need to be uncovered. Say, for example, my line of research that looks at Middle Eastern and North African individuals in the U.S. This population does not have one of those specific variables that comes from these large databases. So when you look at the National Health Interview Survey, 
It asks people their sex. It'll ask them their ethnicity. And someone will have an option to respond, Hispanic or non-Hispanic. They will also ask them about their race. And they will have options for white, black or African-American, American, Indian or Alaska Native, Asian, and some others. They do not have one for this Middle Eastern and North African group. This population actually has some different health characteristics from these other groups, but they're technically defined by the U.S. government as white. In 1977, the Office of Management and Budget set up a Statistical Policy Directive, and it's Statistical Policy Directive 15, and this is what provides the guidance on the collection of race and ethnicity. This has not been updated since 1997, and the white race is actually defined as any individuals who trace their heritage or have original origins from Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa. So over the past 30 years or so, there has been a group of researchers who have tried to disaggregate individuals from the Middle East to try and see how their health is different and show how their health is different from whites in order to create a separate identifier for them. So when using these large national databases, you can take different questions to try and create this race and ethnicity variable. So the National Health Interview Survey not only asks those questions about sex, about race and ethnicity, but they also ask where someone is born. So we're able to take these different questions and then use a region of birth from, say, the Middle East or North Africa to create that different category for that group. That's interesting. So, I mean, maybe it's something you may not be able to speak to. So 1977, because that was one of my questions, was... What are the origins of this group being identified as white? Because I read that and it kind of struck me as an interesting idea and it runs counterintuitive in my brain a little bit. Not I mean, again, it's my own bias as I'm filling out surveys of forms. I never really look. I'm just finding mud and moving on. I'm not really looking at, at all the options. So do you have any idea why they decided? I know that's what the definition was, but do you have the, as far as the etymology, how they decided that was what the definition was? Because this is all very arbitrary, it sounds like. Yeah. So, well, going back to how you mentioned the, how you go through and you just kind of fill them out, and that's how I was as well. And then I graduated from my MPH in 2009. And in 2010 is when I had my first U.S. census. And so I thought, hey, this is exciting. I'm, I'm in public health. I get to fill out this survey. So I filled it out and I filled out non-Hispanic and white and filled out the other questions. Well, then, as I mentioned before, I moved to England the year after. And in England, they do it a year later. So they did it in 2011. And so I thought, oh, well, this is cool. I get to fill out another census. And so I went through and I filled it out. And it was interesting to see how the categories were different. The only statistician would say, oh, cool, I get to do another census like a year later. Honestly, I I like doing censuses too. You're not alone. I get excited. Maybe it's just my business background, but... Yeah, well, when looking at the question, so they actually have it split out in these different forms. And so they'll have white English, white Welsh, white Scottish, white Irish, white British, and then they have an other box. And then what was really fascinating to me and what made me really interested in this population was they had an Arab group. So when I say the Middle East and North African population, it includes both Arab and non-Arab countries 
within that region. So a place like the United States, who has a much larger population and a much larger immigrant population from that region that does not have a separate checkbox for them, but yet somewhere like England, that is a much smaller island, has a way to get representation for them. On the history of it, I do not know all of the background, but part of it was that they were able to pass in certain groups as white in order to receive benefits. So in order to buy a house back in, say, the 1900s, then you would have to be considered white. And so if you were looking white, then you would want to be classified as white so that you can purchase a home and get other benefits. But as the climate has changed over many decades, the lived experiences, how people see this population and how they may see themselves has changed. You did mention that they're working on changing that, though, right? The U.S. Office of Management and Budget is trying to make an effort to make similar changes to how you said it was in England, right? To have specific Middle Eastern specific and maybe North African specific as well. How will that change your research if they do make that change? Well, we'll finally be able to have baseline data on the population. So this came from a work group that was established and they came out with recommendations in 2015 to have a separate checkbox for this population. And it went through and it got to the point where it was almost going to be pushed through to be on the next census. And then they decided to drop it. So there was a lot of research that was already done to try and create this checkbox. And so now it was last summer where it's Karen Orvis. Dr. Orvis came out with a statement stating that they are planning to look at revising these changes. They did several different groups. They did some listening sessions with people. So not only are they considering adding a checkbox for Mita, but they are also considering combining the race and ethnicity grouping. So there's only one question. Right now, it's separated between Hispanic versus non-Hispanic and its options for ethnicity. And then the other grouping is race specifically. And so there are many different changes that are being proposed, but my research focuses specifically on this group in itself. So they did the listening sessions in the fall, and then in January is when they came out with a comment period, and they asked people to comment on all of the changes. And so it was available online. It ended in April. It was actually only supposed to be open until like April 6th or 7th, and it ended up ending at the end of the month. And anybody in the public could go on and make any comment about any of the changes. And so I thought it'd be a great idea to look at some of these comments. I remember when the last 2015 comment period came out, I don't remember there being a whole lot of comments, but I remember putting in a comment myself. And so I thought, oh, well, this would be great. I'm going to look at all of the comments. I didn't realize there'd be over 20,000 of them which is why I have many more students in my lab this semester than I normally do, because we're looking at all of the different comments. But already, I've looked at 6,700 of them and found that there was a lot of support for adding the MENA checkbox. And in fact, two-thirds of the comments actually mentioned 
the MENA checkbox versus other changes that were suggested there. Find myself looking at YouTube comments. It's probably not as endearing as what you're doing. So <laughs> they're really interesting. And so some of them, I looked at it to see if people commented about related to health reasons, because that's what's interesting to me to have some sort of identifier to have baseline health statistics for this population. That is like 6,700 comments is a, yeah. a lot. So I will give a shout out to the two students who helped me with those comments, Wafa and Shruti. And then I have a couple other, well, actually not least a couple other, but I have about five other students that are helping me this semester. And we're going to look at some other things with the comments as well. So not only did we look at the health topics in the last paper, but as we went through the peer review process, they wanted us to look at more. And so we found that a lot of it was related to schools and schools wanted to have not only options for students to get scholarships, but also to have mental health services, to be able to provide other services within the school itself. A lot of people also mentioned linguistic services. I was at a conference in May and they talked about Arabic being the fastest growing language spoken among households in the U.S. That's really neat. Shout out to all of our student workers, honestly, bless them for all that they do for us, especially our research student workers. So we appreciate you guys. A question that I have, we work in nursing. And so the things that we look at are about health outcomes, right? Especially with me working in rural health specifically, you know, we deal a lot with the social determinants of health. And so a question that I have for you really is, what health factors and health outcomes have you noticed that these specific people experience that are different than the white race that you stated? So from the previous studies that I've been involved in, and these are studies particularly using that one data source that I mentioned, the National Health Interview Survey, because that's really the only one that has that place of birth, the country of birth variable that we can create this Middle Eastern North African group from. We looked at psychological distress, so looking at mental health concerns there, and we did find that MENA individuals were more likely to experience serious psychological distress compared to other U.S. and foreign-born white individuals. For cancer screenings and vaccinations, we found that foreign-born MENA women were less likely to report flu vaccine, pneumonia vaccine, pap smears, clinical breast exams compared to U.S.-born white women, but there was no difference that we found in mammograms there. Then looking at some of the more recent studies that I've been involved in, have looked at cognitive impairment, cognitive disability, and Alzheimer's disease and related dementia. This population is not only getting larger, but there is a large group of older MENA individuals. And then we're finding that the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease and cognitive health issues is higher among this group, among other whites. Wow. So having that checkbox will ultimately give you more information. Chances are you're missing folks in the analysis as it stands. So getting a better baseline there will be will be definitely beneficial. And absolutely. I think that once you have more and better data specifying these specific groups, that's when you can kind of start figuring out like how can we help them, right? 
can't help something that you don't have the answer to. So you kind of need to, you know, figuring out and getting more data about these groups, I think will ultimately in the long run help us identify how we can get more preventative options for them and how we can specifically what we need to focus on in these groups that can help their health outcomes. So I think that's really great. Yeah, a lot of the research really is limited to specific populations in Michigan. There's some that's done in California. There's starting to be some studies coming out with different data sources in Massachusetts. There was recently a study that was in Houston, but there's not a lot that's been done in Texas and not a lot that has been done in different areas across the country. So just having some sort of baseline identifier to be able to start looking at the health among this population and including U.S. born. So when we use the National Health Interview Survey, we can only look at foreign born individuals. The American Community Survey is a survey that's done through the U.S. Census Bureau that does allow us to look at MENA populations through ancestry questions. However, it's not a health survey. So it will ask about disability. It'll ask about physical disability, functional limitations, but it won't ask about other health concerns. And so that's really limited in that area. So hopefully we'll get some progress going there pretty soon. Here's something I'd always love to ask a statistician. Somebody lives on. I'm a statistician. I'm an epidemiologist. Okay, you like numbers. You like all that. You like all that stuff. You're running studies. So let me. Have you had as you've gone over different results and analyzed data? Have you ever had a statistical result that stopped you in your tracks and made you think, "Man, did I do this right?" And you had to go back and run it again and maybe rerun it. Where you're like something so obviously just jumped out at you that made you rethink. I had to go back and redo the the analysis, look at everything again. It turned out to be true. Oh, that's a good one. Well, I will say I redo analyses a lot just to make sure I've done it right, particularly when something goes prior to publication. And then when we are publishing data, because there's also a movement to have open data and to share data sources online, so that people are able to have a more transparent awareness of the data that's in research studies. Maybe I'm just, I'm not that surprised by anything. There hasn't really been anything that's showed up that I've been that surprised by. Probably because you've been doing this research for quite some time, so you already know what kind of the issues are, right? And the things that you're likely going to come across. That makes sense. I've definitely, I've had a couple statistics on things that I wasn't sure about, like topics that I wasn't as familiar with, uh, maybe like public health, where they've told me a, a, a stat and I've been like, that can't be right. You know, I'm sure that you've also been in some of those presentations. I think that it's usually when I don't find a difference that I'm surprised. So if I want to talk statistically here, when the null hypothesis, when you fail to reject the null hypothesis, there you go. There's my nerdies down. (laughs) (laughs) We love it. We love it here. That's when I feel like I should have had a difference. There should have been a difference. So I mentioned briefly the mammogram difference, that there was no difference between foreign-born Mina women and U.S.-born white women in their uptake of mammograms. But then we also know that there's been a large movement for breast cancer awareness, and there have been several different media campaigns. There's these different Susan G. Cullen walks and all these different things that make people more aware of it. And so 
I think maybe it's when I don't find the difference between a marginalized population and a majority population that I'm more surprised. I do want to comment and say that the Center for Rural Health and Nursing, we do offer faculty grants and awards. So if there's, you know, anything that you guys are doing specifically where you wanted to focus on maybe rural populations, we'd be more than happy to to talk more with you. So that's that's my spiel for the center. But, you know, a significant portion of these rural communities, they're minorities or underserved, right? And so what you're doing really does coincide a lot with what we do. Yeah, and this is just one part of many other research projects that I'm involved in. So, and you'll see my poster, my plug for the Rural Health Conference that's coming up in the fall. So I will have a poster there that focuses on other racial and ethnic minority groups and differences using some other national data sources. So I do a lot with different health topics in my research and I would say I focus a lot on this MENA population right now because it is so timely and important. And I really want this community to be able to have some sort of resources that they deserve. But that's not it. And if I only did that as my research, I wouldn't have a lot to do because there's not the identifier. And so doing some other types of research projects like using the National Health and Aging Trends Survey, which looks at differences in older adults living at rural and urban areas. We recently did a couple studies looking at dementia caregivers and differences between urban and rural, and then looking within that, the differences between minority and not minority populations. Now, they had a very small sample size of Hispanic individuals in the rural area within those studies. So we had to kind of group them together, but we did find some interesting differences there. I would love to see that study. So it's staring me in the face here, Dr. Kendrick. And I got to ask, you brought a book and not everybody brings a book to these things here. And I feel like I'm, you know, Jimmy Fallon. That's all I knew she was my people. She brought a book. She brought a book. And not only is it any book, it's a book that looks like you wrote yourself. Big Data for Epidemiology, colon, Applied Data Analysis Using National Health Surveys. So you wrote this book and you're using it as a textbook for your grad public health class. The fun thing about this, I actually read some of it there. Did I understand any of it? Not really. That's okay. But it, it's open access. I, I was reading. I just went to a little website and opened it and started reading it. What was the decision process to make this book open access? So I decided to make this book when I was sitting at orientation in fall 2019. And the UTA library came and talked about a program called the UTA CARES program. And they give grants to faculty to create open education resources for students with the whole goal of trying to make education more affordable. And I remember being in college, getting my books spending so much money on them. At the time, they weren't available electronically. I would buy used ones, then highlight them like crazy, then sell them back. And they were always so expensive. And so I thought that that was a really cool way to take what I wanted to do for that course. Number one, turn it into a book that I can use to train my own students. Number two, 
align it with the course, and number three, save students money. And so that's what I did. So I developed this book based on an elective that I created for myself in my PhD program, but it was not so rigorous of an analysis that an MPH student could do the analysis with it. And so I just set it up to where it has like an introductory section, and then it has five different data sources, and it goes through these different data sources, one being the National Health Interview Survey that I mentioned, the other being the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, which could be of interest to other students in public health since we're housed in kinesiology. It has a lot of those related topics in it. And then three other different surveys, and then kind of come up with a guide for how I wanted people to write up papers, whether they're working with me or taking my class, present their research as posters and oral presentations, and just kind of like wrap things up. I got the grant to do that in February 2020, and it just took a little bit longer than I expected, so it was published last summer. But I think that students like it. It's been very helpful for students coming and working with me in the lab, and it's worked well for students in the course. I'm presenting some pre and post results from student data at the Open Education Conference this fall in November. And so we can really see what maybe some other people think of it, because it's a program and a conference that's not just public health. It's other people focused all on open education resources. And so it's going to be really interesting to get their perspectives on that. Sure. So have the students expressed any uh, dissatisfaction with not getting the right to sell that book back for $3 at a cliff bar? <laughs> no. No. Okay. They, de they definitely have it. Um they all just access it online and they can access the data sources and go from there. No, it's fantastic. It's really neat. To, it's really neat to see that out there. I mean, because yeah. textbooks, it's one of those hidden costs. It impacts students on a regular basis. I have emails weekly from students, you know, just like, well, I didn't have to, might have to pay $250 for this book yeah. for a five week class. So I need to shrug my shoulders. It's really interesting, and we really appreciate you trying to cut some of these costs for students because, you know, realistically, when you're in college, you're a majority of students, I would say, are at the poorest they're going to be in their life, right? You're just getting out of your parents' house. Um, you're having to spend money just to get started with school, and then now you're having to spend extra money to get these books, right? But the most expensive books, at least for me, were my undergraduate program. They were like the biology classes, which are the first classes you have to take. And then now that I'm in a PhD program, I think I spent $100 on books for the whole semester, which is probably the cheapest that I've ever had to spend. So it is interesting that, you know, students are spending all this money in their first four years, really, on all these books, and then in their master's program as well. And so it's really awesome that you're trying to help them eliminate some of these costs. And should they look at it, they'll, they'll make a business decision. They'll look and say, that book costs a lot. Maybe I don't need it. And then they're not learning what they need to learn in the class. So it just kind of gets a little gets a little messy. It also is related to using a specific type of software. So this one is specifically SAS. And the SAS program that they use is a free version for students. And so they don't have to pay for that software either. I considered using a different program, which is called Stata, 
which I may eventually do some sort of supplement related to Stata because there's a lot of code in there that you could use for the current program and then translate it to a different program. But they don't have a free option for students, and so that's why I decided to do SAS. When they take that course, they either decide they would really like data analysis or they hate it. And so it's really a good way of letting them decide and know if that's what they want to do. So I love chasing this. This is something that's so interesting. What have you seen the differences in having worked over there? The difference between like the U.S. and U.K. public health approaches. You mentioned the idea about the ways people are defined in surveys. But what is there anything else as far as public facing that you see is particularly different or of, of interest? So going from a program here and teaching over there, first off, just a little bit of a different structure in schooling. So I was in postgraduate medicine. And over there, that was the master's level programming. Whereas here, it would be a postdoc almost would be a more considered postgraduate level. And the education for, say, a physician, you would actually start in your bachelor's degree over there. So instead of going into a year four year undergraduate and then going to medical school, you would actually do something more like you would, you would declare that you're a medical student going into your university and then you would get your MBBS degree. The courses that I taught were all modular blocks, and so it wasn't over a semester. Now, granted, that was also in a master's program that I taught, but it was like you would have one week, and it would be eight to five every day. The biggest difference would be that there's always a tea time at three o'clock, and they actually had tea and cookies or biscuits. But on top of that, there were just some of the differences in the way that they phrase different things, a lot more acceptance for public health. I think there is a lot of hesitation over here, but there was a lot more acceptance. What was the go-to tea flavor? Well, it's all like English breakfast, to English what you call it here. But then it would be, when I first lived in England, I was a receptionist, and so I actually learned how to make a good tea because that was part of my job was to make the tea in the morning. And you either had a black tea or a white tea, one sugar or two. And so people would just walk by and be like, I'll have a white tea with two. And then you would have to go and make the tea, but it was all English breakfast tea. Um, also, a very important question that we forgot to ask is in England, I'm sure that they love Harry Potter they're in the area over there, right? So do you love Harry Potter? Do you have this obsession like everybody else does? So I have read all of the Harry Potter yes. books. However, it's been a while, but I do still have them. And I've seen all the movies and I do still have them on DVD. I have thought about getting rid of them multiple times, but since it is a complete set, I have kept them. But... My husband's a huge Scorse fan, and he does not like Harry Potter, and my kids are not old enough to appreciate Harry Potter yet, so I'm sure that there will be a revival at some point. You said um, yet, yeah, so there's hope. Yes, <laughs> so, but we are definitely Brighton and Hope, uh, Albion Seagulls fans, and we watch all of the English Premier League football on Saturday and Sunday mornings, and all of that. Dr. Kindred. 
One final question. I think it's a good one. I hope it's a good one. What is your why? Why do you do what you do? You've explained all of this. It sounds like you're making a, a great contribution, but what is the why? Oh, that's always the hard question. I feel like that's always the question. Of, we bring the tough questions of, here. Of thinking about thinking, why do I do what I want? Why do I do what I do? And how do I keep on going? I think that public health is fascinating. And I think that epidemiology is so interesting and in looking at different factors that influence. And that's really the why, because epidemiology is the why. And it's looking at how everything affects people's health across the life course. And so everything relates to how healthy you are, whether you got up at 5.30 in the morning and did yoga, which I didn't do this morning, but I did yesterday. And that contributes to your health in that way, whether it's, you know, having relationships with people, your different lengths of experiences and how that influences your health. So that's maybe kind of a way of dancing around the question, but my why really is just the ability to train future public health professionals to have them come to UTA and know what nature they want and not be undecided and then pick psychology and be like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll just find something else. And so that really makes me want to go to class and teach, even if, you know, it's not the best day. Well, Dr. Kendra, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So, Aston, what did you think about everything Dr. Kendra had to say? I thought it was really interesting. I mean, since I work in rural health, a lot of what she was talking about, the research that they're doing, does actually directly correlate with, you know, some of the programs that we deal with directly. I do think that it's a common misconception that nursing and public health don't have a lot to do with each other. They actually do. Um, and so a lot of research has a public health component to it. So that's specifically in nursing. So what did you think? Well, it's interesting, you know, seeing the the exact gaps that she's seen in surveys and in research and addressing those gaps. It's classic researcher behavior, and it's a great approach. And I think it's necessary because, again, there is so many angles or so many approaches, so many populations and contexts we have to take into account that the work is never done. Dr. Kendrat hit a particular point where she is addressing a specific need and advocating for this thing to go into place so that there could be more data, more information with more results and better understanding of, of this population. I think it's wonderful. And it's cool to see on the front end before these changes are implemented, kind of what you're doing, because she's, she's kind of MacGyvering it all together a little bit. And so seeing that and, and trying to close that gap as much as possible, it's quite interesting and inspiring. Yeah, I agree with that. Honestly, I think most researchers that we talk to, you know, that's that's like their bread and butter is they just throw stuff together and kind of hope for the best and hope to find something that, you know, really makes a change. And so, you know, it's researchers like Dr. Kendra that really make a difference in the world, right? Not only do they sit in a, a lab and, and run numbers, but they also go out and they advocate as well for these communities, kind of like Dr. Kyra Brown from last season, right? She's going out and she's advocating for maternal health. Dr. Kendra is is advocating for this manna to be pushed through as an additional line on these surveys. So I think that it's really fantastic. I'm glad that she was our first guest. And, you know, we're hoping to bring you some additional fantastic guests this season as well on future episodes. She has set the bar high. She has. She has set the bar very high. So 
Thank you to everyone for listening to our season two premiere episode of Behind the Scrubs. Join us this season as we continue our conversation with key voices in the public health community discussing their areas of research and innovation. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To keep up with UT Arlington's College of Nursing and Health Innovation and its various programs, visit us online or connect with us on Facebook and Twitter at UTA Con High. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye, y'all.